0: Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, perhaps the greatest feminist podcast in history. (laughs) (laughs) Brunch. Excellent. Today we have Kellen, Julia, Bianca, Zoe, and Laura. Again, today we are talking about historical myths, information that gets passed down to us about our history or the history of the world that is basically just plain bullshit. Um, unfortunately, there's like a shit ton of this kind of information, um, so we're only going to scratch the surface today. I think it also bears reminding that we are a U.S.-based podcast, so we're mostly but not exclusively going to be talking about U.S. history here.
1: Okay, I, have, I already have a hot take to contribute to the discourse um (laughs) no so when I was younger I like really hated history class and I thought it was super boring and then it turns out I found out um in in my adulthood that I actually just think white men are super boring and (laughs) history about other things is really cool and partially I learned that from
0: Kellen oh that makes me so happy (laughs) I love that Yeah, I think there are like I could go on and on about ways that you can teach history to make it interesting so that it's not just like memorizing dates and names, which I think is like just the worst possible way to teach it. Unfortunately, is the way a lot of people learn history, but it's not what we're going to do today. So we were going to start today by talking about some of the myths about Native American societies. Um, there's lots of things that I feel like we sometimes learn or are taught in, really starting in like elementary school. Whether it's Native Americans were particularly violent, whether it's they were quote unquote just hunters and gatherers, whether it's that they didn't have complex societies, didn't know how to properly use the land. There's so many things that swirl around.
2: Yeah, totally. So. A couple of things that I wanted to talk about is, number one, um, there is still a a contingency of preschool and elementary school teachers who do uh, feathered uh, construction hats uh, with, like, a brown band and, like, colored construction paper to make feathers, so... I just, all that's to say is that at a very young age, we have this cultural appropriation that's happening, as well as, obviously, an intense whitewashing that's happening. Because, obviously, Thanksgiving is considered to be this uh, very peaceful moment between indigenous peoples of uh, what is now Virginia, right? That's, like, where the pilgrims came. Massachusetts Massachusetts it's fine. it's fine
0: who cares about the pilgrims the thing yeah, is I don't exactly care about the pilgrims but gross. I do
2: care about getting the indigenous peoples who had to totally. deal with that correctly so
0: Ma- Massachusetts so Massachusetts is actually a native word oh my um, god okay
2: mm-hmm. thank you thank yeah. thank you so I think that like that is all like I guess when we're in elementary school, it's not history class, but that is history we're taught at such a young age that I think is violent to Indigenous people because it just obviously creates, A, this narrative that um, Native Americans are something of the past, and also it creates a narrative that, um, like, we've all been kumbaya this whole time. Um, But the other... um, Thing that is really hurtful that is like the lib argument for Native Americans uh, like historically is the idea of the quote-unquote noble savage. So this idea is something that um, kind of came out of the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s and there were there was like an advertise advertising campaign that was shown all over the united states where this guy who wasn't even native american uh like showing a tear crying down his face to and it was like a psa to amplify recycling um so this is like the other really problematic thing um I want to be clear that a lot of indigenous nations used what is known in the environmental community now as traditional ecological knowledge, and what that meant is that there was a lot of caretaking to the land that colonial settler mentality does not have, Um, but I want to be clear that a lot of that work was really intricate, Um, so their uh, stewardship over the land was really intricate, and so... There's two quotes that I wanted to read that were really short um, from An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and one part is about, like, the alterations to the land that indigenous people did in the United States, or in what is now the United States. Native peoples had created town sites, farms, monumental earthworks, and networks of roads, And they had devised a wide variety of governments, some as complex as any in the world. They had developed sophisticated philosophies of government, traditions of diplomacy, and policies of international relations. They conducted trade along roads that crisscrossed the landmasses and waterways of the American continents. Before the arrival of Europeans, North America was indeed a continent of villages, but also a continent of nations and federations of nations. Um, and then she goes on to say uh, that <laughs> regarding the colonial, uh, you know, the, the colonization of what is now the United States, uh, she writes. Incapable of conquering true wilderness, the Europeans were highly competent in the skill of conquering other people. And that is what they did. They did not settle virgin land. They invaded and displaced a resident population. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think that's really well said, and I'm glad we could bring some, drop some knowledge um, there. Um, Another thing that I wanted to talk about, and this is actually what kind of caused us to do this episode, is that my very supportive co-hosts were like, we should do an episode where you talk about your dissertation. And I was like, uh, what if I just lecture at everybody? I don't want to do that. So instead, we're doing this episode where this is just a little piece of this broader, this broader um, topic that we're covering today. But I wanted to talk a, a little bit about what my dissertation is about, which is the myth of the free state or the free north, To be clear,
1: we all wanted to attend an episode where you lecture (laughs) us, but we're happy to do this as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your support. Um, So I think that this is something that we're, we're taught from like another thing we're taught from a very young age, from like middle school history textbooks, starting even like when we're talking about the beginning of the United States, we have maps where the states are divided into free states and slave states. And there's been a lot of work that historians have done that I think is like filtered out to the sort of broader public that shows that slavery existed, not just in the South, but all over the country. Um, And so that's really, really important, I think, for people to be absorbing and appreciating because African-Americans like were enslaved literally everywhere. Um, The North is certainly not like free of sin in the way that I think sometimes it likes to pretend to be. So. What I'm writing my dissertation about is the origin of this myth, this concept of a free state. A lot of, like I said, historians have proven that it's not real. um, But so far, nobody's been like, well, where did it come from? Who invented it? And like, what purposes did it serve? And so that's the dissertation and hopefully the book that I'm working on right now. And to give season of the bitch listeners like a little inside scoop preview. Well, season of the bitch
1: exclusive.
0: Yeah, y'all better still fucking buy the book when it comes out in like ten years. Better buy the book when it comes out. ASMR. (laughs) ASMR. (laughs) Um, The answer is that people, you know, back in the day, at the time of the American Revolution, used the term "free state" to refer to a self-governing republican entity so actually in the second amendment lol of all places um, the term free state comes up um, saying that like in a free state the right to bear arms is guaranteed georgia was as much a free state as new hampshire was because they were both what white people considered to be self-governing and republican um, this term didn't come to mean anything revolving around slavery until literally decades later So if you see a map in your high school history textbook, if you go back and look at it that says, um, here's the free states and here's the slave states at the time of the constitution signing, that's just not real. Nobody was saying that, everything was a free state um, and it didn't have anything to do with slavery. So anyway, um, there's a big shift that happens in the United States and that shift is called capitalism. And this is really important because a lot of people don't know what capitalism is in history. Sorry, that was really aggressive. Um, but it's kind but of true. true.
2: It's
0: true. wasn't <laughs> it
1: the
2: only
0: one who
1: knows the historical definition of capitalism. This is the exclusive season of the bitch content. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not to like get too into the weeds of like what historians are debating about these days, but a lot of people think that capitalism is literally everything. Wrong. But it's like, no. Right. Capitalism is a specific labor relationship where people some people own the means of production and the people who don't own the means of production sell their labor on the labor market for a wage. Okay, Slavery isn't capitalism. It's like the basic thing there. If you talk to a person who is enslaved, they're not selling their labor. Their their bodies are being sold. Their labor is controlled by somebody else directly. Um, And capitalism develops. In sort of the late colonial, early post-colonial period in the United States, you have a movement away from household labor where labor is controlled on the household level and there's not a, a ton of production for market to a system where there's a lot of wage labor happening. There is a developing bourgeois capitalist class. And importantly, you don't have white people who are in indentured servitude anymore. So there's this shift where the only place that you have a really strong non-wage labor contingent is in the South with slavery. And so there develops these two very separate economic systems of free labor in the North and slave labor in the South. I'm doing hand motions that people who are listening to this podcast cannot see. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, and so what has to happen first is that people in the North have to recognize, understand and name free labor as a system before they develop this idea of the free state as something distinct from the slave state. And so that is the big reveal. People like begin to understand this economic system of capitalism as being fundamentally different from slavery and then name the free state to disting- distinguish themselves from the slave state. What this also does though, is it's just naming the dominant system of labor. There are still people enslaved in the North. So when you're like, doesn't that ignore the, like? tens of thousands of african americans enslaved in the quote-unquote northern states yeah it does because white people who are naming this stuff didn't give a shit about them and so Mm. anyway that is the story of how the free state came to be why it ignores the realities of slavery on the ground there's obviously a lot more that i could go into because like i said it's like a book long thing um thank you for giving me the time to explain this this is what i'm writing about
3: that was so good oh yeah wow. <laughs> I did not know that like th- thank you for explaining yeah. that that's really interesting
1: I knew that only because Kellen and I talked about this in a bar once and I was really excited <laughs> Kellen was like I didn't know anyone else would find this interesting wow. <laughs> Your yes. typical bar conversation for Kellen wow. and I it is
4: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh I Hold remember I who once canvassed a bartender Oh, yeah. Another time when we were like, I remember posting a picture of of me and Zoe. It actually might have been the same time (laughs) of you and me on Instagram. And I don't remember what we were talking about, but the caption was like, if you insult Marx, we will fight you. (laughs) It was because that was what we had been talking about, fighting people who didn't believe in Marxism. Anyway, I miss you, Zoe. Come back to me. Oh,
1: my God. I miss you so much. (laughs) Yeah. Also... R.I.P. to when you could just get drunk and yell about Marxism in public. In public. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. (laughs) R.I.P. Marxism, baby. (laughs) (laughs) But related to um, how we learned about slavery, I just wanted to share a little background about the U.S. public school system as (laughs) I experienced it. So in my U.S. history class, which I think was either 10th or 11th grade, um, first to learn about slavery, we watched the TV series Roots, And then we watched Edward Scissorhands so that we could talk about diversity and how people get treated when they're like, quote unquote, like different. (laughs) Um, Oh my God. Also, just to be clear, like the teacher was a black man, but all of my classes in high school, like we just watched movies. Like I took a marine biology class and we watched Finding Nemo, like I'm not kidding. Also my gym class sometimes was like Paula Abdul workout videos. So this (gasps) is how I got so smart. (laughs) um yeah i just just wanted to share my uh you know what i learned in history class oh my god i can't root something at scissor hands.
0: i like can't even be mad about that because it's so absurd
1: <laughs> it really was i still uh clearly still think about that yeah. <laughs> And we had to. I remember. I like remember having a worksheet with questions where, like, we had to specifically like answer like
2: comprehension questions about Edward Scissorhands. Oh my god! And, like, diversity. Oh <laughs> yeah. my god! Absolutely Scarring. Not. Honestly, absolutely not. Is this a good time to transition into the myth that the founding fathers were good and chill? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it's a great um, time. Yeah, I mean, I think the the first thing to say is like, of course, we have like. George Washington painted as an American hero and all of these other things, right? Um, The existence of Mount Rushmore. (laughs) Like, (laughs) literally, the dollar bill. I don't know. I Like, obviously, there's a lot there um, that we glorify these genocidal maniacs. Specifically, Washington being a genocidal maniac with, like, all of his shit that he did. It was, like, through the guy's name begins with an m anyone no okay i don't know men's names i'll delete it it's well his last <laughs> name begins one. with an m it's like the guy who did all these like fucking genocidal attacks on indigenous americans um it's but not like
3: monroe is it that was later right i
2: feel like i feel like that was later but like <clears throat> this is a different guy that was like doing it so that uh George Washington didn't have to, like, sully his name, but George Washington was, like, giving the order for it to happen. Mm. Anyway, um, I just want to just take this opportunity to shit on the cultural nightmare that is Hamilton the oh. musical. <laughs> um, you,
1: Santa, Hamilton? I've seen it.
2: I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing yeah you I've, can I've appreciate it also. the music also it. and be like okay uh whatever i mean like it's ho- i honestly don't appreciate the music i was i I'm hate gonna, the music was, so much <laughs> okay well
3: i'm then gonna out come power. out and say i i actually do like the music embarrassingly <laughs> but the the topic is still bad like
2: oh, yeah. so it for those of you that don't know and haven't gone down the rabbit hole of hamilton i'm sorry who doesn't know what Hamilton is? No, I mean I just wanted to say specifically <laughs>
4: someone whose brain I want, basically.
2: <laughs> Jealous. They paint the picture of Alexander Hamilton as like a person of color, and a refugee, like of they essentially hint to like Afro Caribbean descent, but um, portrayed I think by
1: blacked out during it. I literally don't remember. Sorry, right. go on.
2: <laughs> so then Lin-Manuel Miranda plays him and like it received a lot of like praise because of the cast being predominantly black and other people of color. Um, but the issue is that's obviously not how history happens. They paint um, or they paint they paint Hamilton as an abolitionist, which is just absurd and um, And there's a lot of, obviously, like, misinformation and, like, maybe it's not something you learn in history class, but I bet, like, modern day history history teachers in high school are like, you could listen to this and, like, learn about this in a better way. Um, If I was
1: in high school right now, you know that this is what my my class would be watching.
2: Absolutely.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) So another, I think, myth that we wanted to address that I think hopefully is not as prevalent now as it used to be, but is still definitely floating around, is that the Civil War was about quote-unquote states' rights. Um, so it's definitely a popular refrain where I grew up, which is North Carolina. I'm um, still going to give a little shout out to Davis B. I'm not going to dox you, but uh, just know that I still think you're a piece of shit. Mm.
2: Yeah. Davis okay? B., we hate you. Yeah, enemy of i the be confused pod.
0: with my brother
1: Davis. At first, uh, I did think this was about your brother, and I was like, <gasps>
0: <laughs> <laughs> "We love him." <laughs> oh, no, there were a ton of Davises in the South. Is it related to Jefferson Davis? Not my oh, brother, my but gosh. Uh, probably the pre- prevalence of Davises. Yes. Anyway, um, it is what it is. Moving your brother's on. the
1: only Davis I know, and I will keep it that way based on this Davis B character. <laughs>
0: I had three davises in my class graduating from high school out of 120 people anyway um, (laughs) moving on Um, civil war being about states rights i think the obvious question that comes up is states rights to do what exactly oh right enslaved people yeah you just literally move the next step in the logic and you get there um literally everybody at the time knew that the issue was slavery like literally everyone no one's pretending otherwise. If anybody nowadays tells you that the Civil War is about slave rights, slave, sorry, states' rights, um, that literally just tells you that either they haven't actually read anything from that time period, or they went back and read stuff from that time period and are so determined to like prove this point that they've like contorted those documents beyond recognition. I don't want you to just take my word for it. I'm going to read you a little excerpt from a speech given in 1861 by Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy. He said, quote, the new constitution of the Confederate States of America has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution of African slavery as it exists amongst us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization, This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. The prevailing ideas entertained by most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old constitution were that this enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Sorry, folks. It was about slavery. You heard it here from the man himself. There's literally nothing more to say.
2: Literally.
4: Wow. Yeah. Well, it always just strikes me because I think so much of history, like, consists of interpreting primary documents like these, (laughs) but then, like, history classes will somehow, uh, like, ignore all of this evidence or just, like, totally misinterpret it. And it just made me think of my 11th grade history class, which was AP U.S. history. we, We, like, ran into this problem where my teacher definitely wanted to say, like, I remember, like, he wanted to say that the Civil War was primarily about slavery. But he knew that in the eyes of the AP exam, the quote-unquote right answer for the AP exam was like states' rights. And so like he would always say like, okay, like when you take this exam, you have to say states' rights. But also remember that slavery was also a reason. And I think maybe the AP U.S. history curriculum has changed since I took the course, which was like in 2013, 2014. But I think this also speaks to a lot of different issues. Like one, like primarily the fact that the AP exam and whoever is writing the curriculum was wrong and like racist. And two, it also just reminds me how much I hate the college board who like <laughs> writes the AP exams and stuff. Just the biggest scam of all time. And also three, they're so it, like they're terrible. Um, college board, enemy of the pod. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> And it also just highlights to me, like, the shortcomings of teaching to the test, because even if teachers do introduce the caveat that says, like, okay, this test says this, but actually the correct version of events is this, there's still this, like, semi-authoritative figure or group of figures saying that an absolutely incorrect and racist version of events is the only correct version. And so, like, I haven't looked at the curriculum of AP U.S. history since I took it, but, like, I hope it's changed since then, but in conclusion, abolish the college board.
2: And if you want to know more yeah. about why uh, teaching to a test is bad, you could join our reading group, which is available on our Patreon, because we're talking about the pedagogy of the oppressed. Seamless plug. look I love that.
4: So another thing we wanted to talk about was this misconception that the United States, quote unquote, needed to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. And I have a very very clear like memory of doing this debate in my 10th grade social studies class where we had to like pick a side between whether the u.s was or was not justified in dropping the atomic bombs remember we like um the teacher gave us like a bunch of different like primary documents to analyze and we all like put our desks in a circle and like we had to like sit on the half of the classroom that we were like on and I remember like I was like one of literally three people of my class of like 20 to like 25 kids who like said like no it was not justified and everyone else said it was and I was like am I just like being weird like what's going on like what is happening but I think like I don't know like that experience also made me remember that in my experience like I attended public school from uh, kindergarten through 12th grade like a lot of teachers social studies teachers and history teachers specifically were like Very emphatic that they be quote unquote apolitical or politically neutral instructors, which I think is kind of misguided because everything is a political choice. Like if you say nothing, if you don't like, like everything you do in a classroom, especially in history classrooms, is political. Like for example, like as a side note, my sister once told me that like someone in her U.S. history class in eleventh grade said the Nineteenth Amendment should be repealed because women shouldn't be able to vote, and the person who said this was a girl, also, and the teacher literally said nothing in response. And I, in the name of like remaining quote unquote politically neutral, and I was like, the teacher's silence is itself like a political statement because like the silence implies that that position is a polit- is like a viable or correct yeah. or morally correct one, which is like
1: Rats? to me and bianca and bianca's sister for surviving the pennsylvania
3: public school
4: system (laughs) so (laughs) frustrating i was like how are you saying you're politically neutral when you're allowing opinions like this to go unchallenged in the classroom but okay back to this debate that we were having um i remember like during this debate like the teacher was really trying to present every stance or opinion as an equally viable one like the opinion that like many more people would have died during world war ii if the bombs which quote unquote ended the war were not dropped like that's not true like there's a lot of evidence now that the, that japan would have surrendered in the near future anyways like they were trying to have that opinion hold as much truth value as the opinion that dropping atomic bombs is a human rights violation and like really i think my biggest problem in the way i was taught history is the like fact that like every opinion was given equal credence when that sometimes that's just like not the case um so yeah i just wanted to share that particular anecdote
3: yeah that also reminds me of also in my 11th grade ap us history class um one time the teacher asked everyone like who was a feminist and i was the only person who raised (laughs) my hand and like that and also that like went totally unchallenged like um but i want to talk about this too because this is the whole thing with like having to vote on whether or not it was good for the U.S. to drop the atomic bombs also happened in my class. I don't know if like all U.S. schools just do this, but oh my God. basically like I had a teacher who gave this really long explanation of like basically all of the justifications for why the U.S. was justified in dropping the bombs right before asking us to vote. And ours was, like, a spectrum where it was, like, stand on this side of the room for yes, it was good, stand on this side of the room for no, it was bad. And, like, there were a few people who were slightly onto the, like, no half of the room, but I was the only person who was, like, fully at, like, the wall of no. Um, And it definitely was just one of those moments where I was, like, wow, education can, like, really be propaganda sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Also, when I was in my elementary school U.S. history class, because I guess we had to take U.S. history multiple times, um, we had to do the same kind of thing, but about whether the U.S. should have gotten involved in World War II. Mm. And again, I was the only one in the class who was like, no, because at the time I was like, all war is bad. Um, then later when I got older, I was like, no, that was like a naive opinion. Wars just have to happen sometimes. But now I'm back to being like, I was right the first time. All war is bad. <laughs> um, exactly. Which, you know, I don't know. I just feel like the project of going back and asking, was this action good or bad is not really a useful question from like a political perspective it kind of feels like taking for granted to me that this is like obviously what had to happen but just like how bad was it that the us did that and personally i would much rather learn about who were the people trying to stop this and why did they fail like what were the other options here and why did this become the option that happened so that we can learn from it and hopefully be people who help those same things not happen again
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll just quickly throw in that from a pedagogy standpoint, as somebody that teaches US history, when I have my students like write papers, I always tell them that like arguing X was good or X was bad is not a legitimate historical position. Those are not, that's not a helpful like place to begin. That can't be your thesis. That's not a real argument. Um, But what you can argue is like, instead of saying Reagan was bad, you can say, Reagan's policies were responsible for the essential genocide of the queer population in the United States. That's an argument Anyway, we'll get to you Reagan You could also later. say
1: Reagan is a piece of shit and be correct Right, just maybe it's just not-
0: <laughs> You can't make <laughs> that argument in a history paper, but you would still be right. You can make that argument on Season of the Bitch um, <laughs> And you would um, still appeal to Kellen. <laughs> but um, Just, to, you know, on the subject of dropping the atomic bomb A quick little briefer, Um, reminder that during World War II, and this is important, the Russians were largely absorbed in fighting on the Eastern Front, which means they were fighting in Eastern Europe. They were hugely instrumental in defeating the Nazis there. Meanwhile, the U.S. was absorbed in both the European theater and the Pacific theater, where the primary opponent was the Japanese, who had, before attacking Pearl Harbor, engaged in in colonizing uh, much of East Asia Side note, if we are going to date World War II in a less Eurocentric way, we might actually date it from the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931, but I digress. Anyway, as you might remember from high school history, the United States was concerned, to put it lightly, about how much influence the USSR was going to have over Eastern Europe as the war was drawing to a close because communism, scary, etc. In spring 1945, Hitler surrendered. (laughs) Just kidding. He shot himself in the head. Bye, bitch. Anyway... The Nazis surrendered in... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Laura, I didn't mean to make you <laughs> choke with laughter there. No, it's right. powerful. Um, so the Nazis surrendered in May 1945 in what we call VE, Victory in Europe Day. But the Japanese didn't surrender and instead pledged to keep fighting. As Bianca mentioned, how serious those pledges were you know, um, is a subject of what we might call historical debate. Um, history fans may recall the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 1905. So Japan and Russia, we're bringing Russia back into it, folks, had been imperial rivals in Asia since the turn of the 20th century. So after Germany's surrender, sort of getting their priority number one out of the way, the USSR started to reorient towards fighting in the Pacific. This was a nightmare scenario for Americans who were already freaking out about the potential spread of communism into Eastern Europe and the expansion of the USSR's field of influence there. But, you know, it would prevent Russia from mobilizing in the Pacific and getting involved there, thereby guaranteeing themselves a role in the post-war reconstruction of Japan, a task that the United States wanted to control itself without the meddling of the communists, bringing the war to a speeding halt. Um, and the best way to do that maybe, the utilization of a weapon unlike anything the world had ever seen. People will tell you that the firebombing of Tokyo, for example, actually killed more people than either individual bomb. Um, But I would suggest that maybe that speaks more to the willingness of Americans to wantonly destroy civilian targets than to how devastating the bomb was. But anyway, I think that the arms race of like the next two plus decades would suggest it's almost impossible to overstate the psychic effect of that bomb, the bomb that could instantaneously murder hundreds of thousands of people and slowly kill tens, if not hundreds of thousands, more in an incredibly gruesome way and so there's this whole you know quote oh the japanese were never going to surrender because insert racist explanation of how east asian people are culturally programmed and quote thing it's just historically wrong um and in large part americans were motivated in that decision by anti-communism which is something that's just really not brought up at all when we have these like history debates about which side of the room you're going to stand on rant over yeah (laughs) um which i think brings us to our next thing which is about just the mythology around how americans defeated the nazis um so i think the first point is that really like russia did a lot of the heavy lifting um and the second point is after we like quote unquote defeated them we hired all the nazi scientists and uh if you were wondering how we got to the moon that's it folks it was the nazis did we though get Did to the moon that is. is the rest of what kellen said definitely
4: Ooh, correct moon landing could
1: be another history class lie but that. that is a patreon only discussion
3: <laughs> oh my god but yeah i also wanted to talk a little bit about how i think with this myth that america defeated the nazis it's also like ignoring the ways that American policy helped build up the Nazis in the first place. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how Nazi Germany took inspiration from the U.S. for a lot of the things that they did. Um, This was never discussed in my history classes growing up, honestly, because I think a lot of people don't know about it, but also because it makes the U.S. look really bad and kind of ruins the narrative of World War II that the U.S. was like the hero that came in and saved everyone. Obviously, the Holocaust was a horrific, tragic series of events, but in my history classes, it was really always framed as like the only genocide that has ever happened in history, at least in the time the US has existed. But looking back on it now, and I'm definitely not the first person to come up with this idea. Like, I feel like it's really just because it's the only time that the U.S. was vaguely the good guys in the context of a genocide. Like, there's a clear enemy that can be framed as worse than the U.S. who we fought against. And, you know, the Nazis are unambiguously bad. I think we can all agree on that. But the thing is, Nazi Germany got a lot of those ideas from U.S. immigration policy and the way American borders are policed and from the U.S. colonization of indigenous communities, which has been an ongoing process since Europeans first showed up here. I think this is something that we see a lot of with um, Western colonizing powers, Nazi Germany, the U.S., Israel. There's this attempt to take over like all of the land to the territory's ocean borders or other big natural land borders, and to be in control Of everyone living in those areas and in that process to kill a lot of people and torture people and get them to move somewhere else or to accept colonial control. So um, that is also the method that Hitler was attempting to use. So he was specifically inspired by U.S. Manifest Destiny and westward expansion when thinking about how he wanted to expand Germany. This is kind of like a weird detail but he grew up reading like old west novels about like quote-unquote cowboys versus Indians type things um, and battles with indigenous communities. And he looked at the way that the U.S. displaced indigenous peoples and he was like, that looks pretty effective. Let me try that. And that is what he did. Um, He specifically was really inspired by how the U.S. managed to make the country's demographics very white and come Mm -hmm. close to eliminating indigenous populations. Um, Also, when Nazi Germany was creating laws to oppress jewish people and other groups they specifically studied u.s immigration law and the way that they created this sort of second class of non-citizens who lived in the country but had totally different rights and they were also interested in a range of other just like generally racist laws that the u.s had like laws against interracial marriage um And they use those as a model for anti-Jewish laws. One of the main legal scholars who created Nazi Germany's laws wrote this book in 1936 called Race Law in the United States, which is like, you know, if you can have a book written about your country called Race Law in this country, clearly something has gone very, very wrong there. (laughs) Um, I think like. This is complicated to me because it's, like, I don't want to say that what the U.S. did is only bad because it inspired Nazi Germany. I think this is, like, an argument we hear a lot that something is only bad if you can, like, compare it to the Holocaust in some way. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important to say that, like, it's not a coincidence that someone could look at these sorts of founding myths of the U.S. and, like, Grand Western expansion and be like, that sounds really great and like a really effective way to do genocide. And I think there's something to this idea that colonizing powers take inspiration from one another and collaborate and build off of one another's strategies. Like we still see it to this day, with, for example, Israeli soldiers training alongside US police forces to share tips about how to repress protesters and like the most effective ways to injure and kill people um this is definitely still something that we sort of have to confront now
0: yeah i think that's absolutely right um Another thing that I wanted to talk about is um, some myths that surround the civil rights movement, which is obviously like probably one of the most whitewashed periods of American history. We could do a whole episode on it, but just, I wanted to hit like two people that I think are worth talking about. The first is not other than Mrs. Rosa Parks. Um, I should acknowledge that a lot of what I know about her comes from this really good book called the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks by a historian named Jean Theo Harris. As the traditional narrative goes, Rosa Parks was an Alabama seamstress who got real tired one day on the bus in 1955. There were no seats in the black section of the bus, so she took one of the many open seats in the white section. For this crime, she was arrested. The thing is, um, Rosa Parks was not old when this happened. She was literally 42. Um, she refused to give up the seat on the bus, You know, not because she was elderly, but it was it was a decision that was actively made. She wasn't just tired. She was a dedicated anti-racist organizer. So just as some background, she had been active in the NAACP for more than 10 years at that point, which, you know, not just as a dues paying member, but as somebody who was like doing incredibly daring, incredibly courageous work for what was at that time, the foremost civil rights organization in the country. She was an investigator on the case of Resi Taylor, who was a young black woman who was brutally raped by a group of white men and who bravely tried to seek justice for that crime. She even attended communist party meetings, um, though I should say she never actually joined the party. Um, Anyway, Rosa Parks was an active member of her community and the leaders of what might be considered like the black left in Montgomery, were very aware of what was gonna happen um, when she decided to sit in the white section of the bus and they were very ready to rally around her when she was inevitably arrested. Um, and something to note is that about six months before Parks staged this protest, um, a 15-year-old named Claudette Colvin did the same thing um, on the exact same bus line and she got arrested for sitting in the white section. But Colvin was viewed as a troublemaker and her act of defiance wasn't part of this planned and orchestrated protest. So community members chose not to rally around her arrest or to make it a focal point. I should also note, though, that she was part of this concurrent court case that eventually ruled um, that Montgomery's public transport uh, segregation was unconstitutional. At any rate, um, Montgomery's Black leaders knew how Rosa Parks would play nationally and that she could garner support. She was literally dressed in her Sunday best when she got on the bus that day because she knew there would be pictures taken of her at the police station. Um... You know, she she wasn't a literal old lady who just had sore feet. She was an organizer who knew exactly what the fuck she was doing. And what followed was a boycott of the bus system by its biggest user base, which was Black people and especially Black women in Montgomery. Um, Women chose to walk miles to work, even in the winter, rather than take the buses. The people who had cars figured out carpool and taxi schedules to help as many people as possible. It was this massive enterprise of daily community sacrifice that started with Rosa Parks, and it ended... With Montgomery's buses being desegregated. Another big one, which our listeners are probably really familiar with, is how totally whitewashed uh, Martin Luther King Jr. has been. I'm going to cover this in less detail because, again, most people listening probably know that by the end of his life, Martin Luther King was a socialist. A fact that, like, I don't know, for some reason doesn't get a lot of play in, like, high school celebrations of MLK Day. Um, But anyway, here's just a few little factoids. The first is that you've probably heard or seen King mentioned in the context of discussions of the white moderate. He famously wrote from his um, wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail essay that the biggest threat to progress in America was the white person who thought things should change, but just like really slowly. And, you know, like could black people maybe see the other side for once? Um, very relevant today and worth reading if you haven't read it. Another note, um, this absolute idiot who has a radio show on NPR in my hometown, this will be relevant I promise, Um, he just like truly doesn't have three brain cells between his ears. Um, Anyway, this guy, one time, I will never (laughs) forget this, he was doing an episode on MLK Day and he was like, Martin Luther King died in 1968. This is so surprising to me. I feel like we always think of him as dying in the early 60s, which like first of all why would you say that out loud let alone on a live radio broadcast um but, but anyway i it I, I did think it spoke to the fact that like as a general rule we talk about mlk's accomplishments up through like 1965 and then like kind of shut up about it um and a big part of that is that towards the end of his life he started working on these campaigns in the north like for segrega- desegregating chicago's housing on labor organizing struggles all of this just upsets this narrative that he was all about segregation and voting which i think people like to think of as the only two issues that black people were upset about at the time but that wasn't true like the 1963 march on washington had a much longer title it was actually the march on washington for jobs and freedom it's funny how the economically redistributive parts of the argument get left out um, it's also worth noting that he was a really serious opponent of the war in Vietnam. He considered combating US imperialism literally just as important as fighting for civil and economic rights. He once listed the world's three greatest evils as racism, poverty, and war. And after his death in 1971, he won a Grammy for his 1968 speech, Why I Oppose the War in Vietnam. Which brings me to my last factoid. A white supremacist murdered Martin Luther King in 1968 in Tennessee. And I think it's really relevant to think about what he was doing in the days before he was shot. He was lending his support to striking sanitation workers in Memphis. Black workers did this incredi- incredibly dangerous job. Um, fun fact, sanitation is a more dangerous job than being a cop today. Um, and they mm-hmm. were paid like worse than their white counterparts and they were organizing a strike. And this is the cause that Martin Luther King was supporting when he was assassinated.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think also like this topic just feeds into one of or relates to one of my biggest pet peeves about history class which is just that there's so much that we're not taught or at least that I was not taught about resistance and protest throughout U.S. history I feel like there's often this idea that's put forward that's just kind of like people in the past just had a different worldview like they just thought slavery was okay they just didn't know that gay people existed that's just how things were back then But there have always been people at every moment of history, particularly people who bear the harshest consequences of oppression, who are fighting against it in all of these big and small ways. Um, Obviously I would hope that there would have been more people fighting against oppression, but at the risk of getting a little bit sappy, there have always been people who were willing to stand up to injustice. Um, Like this is a history that I think we as leftists can really draw on. And not learning about these people helps to support this myth that things just are the way they are. It's really hard to change them. And basically, it's pretty impossible to do anything about how our current system works. I feel like we need to learn about these things so that we realize we're not in this alone. And there's like all of these examples of past activism to draw on and look back on and see what worked and what didn't work and try to understand why it didn't work and how we can build on that. Basically, just generally, I really feel like there needs to be more discussion of both successful and unsuccessful protest movements throughout US history.
1: We also wanted to talk about the myth that Ronald Reagan was a good guy, big myth, but (laughs) in in the sake of time, we're going to skip over that in this episode, but lucky for you, we have an entire episode where (laughs) Kellen and I just talk about how much we hate him and Nancy. She's not spared from the (laughs) wrath for like an hour. So yeah, when you're done this episode, if you haven't listened to that one, head over to that. Pretty sure it's called SOTV versus Ronald Reagan and pretty sure we won the fight. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. So I think we wanted to wrap up with this topic. That's it's sort of a broad topic, but I personally feel that I've learned, as we've been talking about, a pretty incorrect version of US history. But I also really feel that I was taught almost nothing about other countries' histories and like the way that things work there now, honestly. Um, we had a brief like world history unit at my school that mostly looked at the origins of kind of like quote unquote, Western civilization, like Greek and Roman societies. But beyond that, the only topics I remember being discussed were ones that specifically tied into the version of US history we were learning in some way. Um, Some examples that come to mind for me are like when I was taught about the American Revolution, and I think this is kind of a common thing. They also talked about the French Revolution as an example of a similar sort of rebellion that was going on at the same time and similarly when we learned about the very sanitized version of the civil rights movement that i was taught we also learned about struggles for self-determination that were happening like roughly around the same time at least in the same century in both south africa and india and like honestly at the time i do think that i just believed these were the only other big things happening in the world um which in mm-hmm. retrospect just like makes no sense it doesn't make sense that everything important in history would involve or be related to the u.s in some way but that's just such a big part of how history is taught in u.s schools Mm -hmm. um another example that comes to mind for me is just the whole narrative of world war ii that like Germany was evil. And then it's just kind of like Japan was on their side for some reason. Um, Like there was no discussion of the Japanese colonization of Korea or how the U.S. played a role in that aftermath of World War II with the division of Korea into North and South Korea and leading to the Korean War. All of this created a lot of violence and trauma for Korean people. And the U.S. played a huge role in that. And I just never was taught about that at all. I think the Korean War was maybe mentioned, but like super briefly I think maybe it was like a paragraph in our textbook, if that, Um, and that's just one example, but I think it really demonstrates how the version of history that most of us in the U.S. are taught is just very U.S. centric and is geared in all of these subtle and not so subtle ways towards kind of portraying the U.S. as like the main character and also the hero of history. (laughs) Yeah absolutely
0: yeah i feel like the ethos of the korean war as it is sort of like generally taught in u.s history at the high school level can be summed up with like oops and then just move straight along
3: yeah definitely
4: yeah no i definitely relate to being taught like multiple different and all incorrect versions of u.s history throughout the course of my education but like in 10th grade i was lucky to have a social studies class called international studies which was my only exposure in high school to like non-US, non-European history. And so we were lucky in the first couple weeks of that class um, to cover the topic of ethnocentrism in like this like meta way. It's like, oh, like history in uh, US schools is often taught in an ethnocentric way. And like basically how like a lot of presentations of history, even non-US history is presented from the standpoint of the US and so like that was a really helpful thing to learn about um and in that class we did learn about like Japanese colonization of Korea and also like misconceptions about North Korea that were generated by U.S. propaganda and we also learned just like I don't know I think it was like a lot of people's first exposure to like the U.S. being like this like worldwide like demon in a lot of ways and we learned about like um, the US. is colonization of African countries and how that led to so many disastrous effects. And I definitely think it was like good to get that exposure because a lot of people in my class, I remember being like uh, patriotic in almost like a scary way. Um, but I wish my school offered more classes like that because the curriculum from ninth to twelfth grade was uh, civics in ninth grade, international studies in 10th grade. U.S. history in 11th grade, and in 12th grade, you had the option between taking U.S. government and European history. So, like, three out of the four years you were in high school, you were studying either U.S. or Eurocentric history. So, like, by virtue of only having one year to cram every place in the world's history that is not the U.S. or Europe, so, of course, there's a lot of stuff you have to gloss over. Like, I remember our international studies class was, like, really broad and surface level in its scope, like, because it had to be. Um, whereas, like, I remember we were learning about, like, every single individual battle in the Civil War in 11th grade, and I, like, truly,
3: I hated that I, I
4: truly, someone who I've never cared, maybe, I think I just didn't get it, like, I never cared about military strategy at all. Like, I just don't, I just didn't care. Um, so
0: fucking stupid. As a historian, it's terrible.
4: Yeah, I just, I don't care about, I don't care about battle formations. Like, I just don't.
0: Um, I
4: really felt my eyes just glazing over that uh, during that part
2: oh yes you both bring up so many good points um a few things I wanted to touch on one is geography as part of social studies um uh when I had the opportunity I took a like a year off in college and I worked in Colorado and I mostly worked with international people from you know different countries around the world and they would know where i am from buffalo new york because they knew about niagara falls and like they would tell me about this like town they were or this region they were in in china or um this region they were in in brazil or you know depending on the person and you know i absolutely knew nothing because in the united states we do not prioritize global geography um But I actually ended up emailing my high school global studies teacher after I took some history courses in college, which like, LOL, I just feel like I was always this way. Anyway, it's fine, Um, because all we learned was this Eurocentric version of history. Um, It took taking a class called Perspectives from Throughout the African Diaspora to even address the deeply ingrained Eurocentrism in most history classes, Um, The author, Edward Said, talks a lot about Orientalism as the othering of society from so-called Western society, in heavy air quotes. Um, And U.S. classrooms amplify this Western versus other narrative by emphasizing Greek and Roman history, as y'all already pointed out. When I was in grad school, I taught a history class, Gen Ed, uh, called World Civilizations for 1400 to present and we started with the voyages of Zheng He and how China had ships sailing throughout the world that were the largest ships built ever until World War I 500 years later so they had the most complex and intricate like uh naval force but it was used for um gathering information about other cultures. It wasn't, like, a dominating thing that was happening. And anyway, this is, like, literally something I learned when I had to prepare to teach this class. Um, and there's also just, like, a lot there about how much global trade was happening, but then a lot of sources were set on fire during the Confucian era. But it's, it's all complicated, but still. Um... This colonial and Western ideal that other societies are lesser and backwards, and yet there is so much of our society that is built on these other societies, like, I don't know, fucking medicine and mathematics, Um, but this shit is just left out, and it's hard for it not to just feel like a propaganda machine, like we see these other societies as lesser than because it keeps us blind to our own imperial machine. Um, And it's just, it's just garbage. And I did want to say that I took a class my senior year of high school called Terrorism, Trade, and Foreign Policy. And we, like, learned about the hatred of other people of the United States and why that could be. And I am eternally grateful for this random elective class I was able to take in high school. And it had four of us in this class. Um, So really glad to have taken it i think it was the only year it was ever offered because no one took it but it was it was good
1: amazing well i did want to give a shout out very rare that a cis man would get a shout out on season of the bitch a positive (laughs) one that is especially from zoe
0: especially
1: from zoe (laughs) um but a shout out to my ninth grade world history teacher who like in-depth explained the bourgeoisie and the proletariat to us and talked about, like, the inevitability of revolution. I remember him going into detail about, like, Leninism, Stalinism, Maoism, all of it. That's, like, maybe the only memory I have from high school history class. <laughs> I still did almost fail world history because the tests were really hard. But, you know, shout out to him for, A, not failing me, and, B, teaching that. Hell yeah. I'm done. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I yeah I also just have to say, because like, we've been talking a lot about terrible history teachers we've had, but like, I just wanted to say that when I see my friends who are teachers now, especially history teachers, yeah. I'm constantly just like, so blown away by the things that they're doing. And like, I wish I could have had the type of education that they're working to create. Mm-hmm. Um, So we do have a really long way to go. But also, there are some amazing radical teachers out there. are really trying to change this stuff and i think things will only get better as we have more and more of those people basically radical teachers we love you
2: shout out to our favorite radical teacher ambria who formerly was a co-host on this podcast true (laughs) love you ambria (laughs) and
1: um if any of you listeners love us back you can give us your money on patreon at patreon.com season of the bitch um slash season of the bee. I'm not gonna remember it's Season Google of the it. bitch.
3: It's Okay. Bitch. <laughs> <Google it. laughs> Just look it up. Just Google out. It. Uh
1: you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. You can go to our website, uh seasonofthebee.com. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. You can uh What's it called? Spotify us, and then we'll be on your (laughs) year-end list. You can Spotify at us. Um, And, yeah. Oh, you can email us at seasonofthevee at gmail.com.
2: And... I think that's it. I just have to say that in our Spotify raps, it like gave us what you all <laughs> listen to music wise. And I just have to so say funny. like, we're, we're depressed too. Like we're with you. So um, oh much
4: Phoebe Bridgers.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and Mitski. We're like, yes, this is, ba- this is our demographic. Yeah,
2: exactly. Okay. Love you. Love, Love you. you. Bye. 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 of the bitch.